sprawling beaches, towering skyscrapers, and slipper-stealing killer cults. That's just not a combo you see every day. Unless, of course, you happen to live in the tropical island paradise of Cavite. That's in the Philippines. This beautiful coastal providence played one of the most important roles in, colon in the colonial past of the Philippines, as well as its eventual bid for independence. Perhaps the most interesting thing about Cavite is their burials, which you will become familiar with that landscape as they do in just a minute. So hold on to your slippers and don't get too close to the trees as we dive into the, one of the most interesting places on earth. I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat. I want to say thank you to all the listeners out there. I especially appreciate those that are giving us props and support. Recently, one listener, Angie, said she's the show's biggest fan and she wants to hear about Papua New Guinea's Laughing Dead. John told me that he went to school in Munich, Germany, and he wants us to highlight that area. Thanks, y'all. We'll definitely try to cover those subjects. I even want to say thanks to a lady whom I, I won't mention her name. She said we were horrible to promote the eating of meat. Let me quote, plant-based meat is the future, not tortured, raped, mutilated, or murdered animals. Go vegan. All I will say is, I don't know what's going on in her house, but that's not what we call meal prepping hours. Thanks for the opinion. Keep it to yourself. So each episode, we'll be exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. There will be no raping or tor torture of animals. At least I don't think so. So if you love food, culture, and funny stories, then listen up and make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Located in the north of the tall volcano. That's tall, T-A-A-L, not tall. Maybe it's my southern accent that's not the easiest on some words, so just bear with me here. This is known as one of the most industrialized, fastest growing, and most densely populated providences in the Philippines. Cavite isn't always the serene city it is to, it wasn't always the serene city that it is today. While historical records long cited the Tagalongs as being the earliest inhabitants of the area, the earliest settlers actually hailed from Borneo. That's the third largest island in the world and the first largest in Asia. When Chinese trade began spreading into the South Pacific, the area became a mooring place for junks. That's a uh, type of Chinese sailing ship that has full batten sails that were sent to trade in various native settlements around the Manila Bay. I had to look up what batten means. It's long strips of material that supports boat sails and makes it easier for them to change direction. Just think of those Chinese boats you see in movies with the cool sails that look like accordions. Next time you see one, you can impress your friends with your incredible nautical knowledge. <laughs> That's pretty good. So Cavite's history of being colonized started pretty early when they came under the jurisdiction of the Indianized Empire of Majapahit. I'm pretty sure I said that right. Majapahit, a powerful but short-lived empire based on the island of Java. That's right, my coffee addiction is based in a real place, Java. As the empire of Majapahit began to fall, the Tagalog, Tagalog, did I say Tagalog? You guys just come along with me, how's that? The Tagalog residents of the island waged war on the invaders and were able to regain their independence and establish the kingdom of Tondo. Unfortunately, this was short-lived and the island was once again invaded, this time by the Sultan of Brunei, 
who basically used the island as a conveniently located trading post for a while until their empire failed. Spanish colonizers who had been sailing around the area took an immediate interest when they spied the unusual bit of land that stuck out like a tongue in the Manila Bay during the late 16th century. The area where they landed would later become the most important port linking the Spanish colony to the outside world through the Manila-Acapulco galleon trade. With beaches being so easy to moor on, Spanish colonizers established the city of Cavite in 1571 and fortified it so it would become the first line of defense for the city of Manila. The fort, named Fort of St. Felipe, was really something. Each of the four curtain walls held bastions in each corner and had 20 cannons facing the seashore. Home of three infantry companies, each with 180 men, an additional infantry of 220 Pampanga that's uh, one of the largest native groups in the area. Man, there's a lot of big words in here. I think I'm going to need to polish up on my Filipino. So its main purpose ended up being uh, for the construction and the outfitting of galleons in the, in the Manila to Acapulco trade run. As with any port city, the area gradually became more diverse and ended up being called home by a mix of Chinese traders, sailors from Spain, and its Latin American colonies, as well as the indigenous local residents. Because of its military importance and convenience as a trading outpost, Cavite was attacked and subsequently occupied by the British Empire in 1762. The British occupation of Manila and Cavite was an extension of the Seven Years' War between Britain and France, which Spain had recently entered on the side of France. Britain was obviously not stoked that Spain was backing his enemies, so they decided to get even. Following Spain's involvement in the war, the Crown gave permission to the British Royal Navy to conquer the Philippines, specifically the two cities of Cavite and Manila. So, on September 24, 1762, a British fleet of eight ships sailed into the Manila Bay from the nearby Madras, India. Following the fall of Cavite, Cavite, the British moved to Manila, and on October 5, 1764, the night would become known as the night before the fall of the walled city of Manila. Just 11 days after their conquest had begun, the British began their second siege. When the Spanish military got word of the upcoming invasion, they persuaded the Archbishop of Manila to summon a council of war. A few hours after the war council meeting, the British used heavy battering power to successfully breach the walls of the Bastion of San Diego and, meet, and met with little resistance. They managed to take the remaining fortifications uh, uh, of that fort. The siege ended rather quickly with the local Filipino troops suffering most losses, uh, numbering about 300 dead soldiers and 100 wounded. Now hold on, let me stop because I can see I'm doing something here. There's a few things that I really hate. One is saying the word but, because that means everything you say after that, what you said previously doesn't count. And something that I'm doing during this recording, and that's saying uh. I hate uh. So we're going to try to get that out of this. So anyway, back to the story. The city didn't calm down much even after the siege ended. 
though, as it continued to be ransacked by both invading and defending forces over the next 30 hours. The pillaging finally stopped when the Spanish finally agreed to pay 1 million Spanish... Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I said uh, again. Pesitas for a total of 4 million that the British demanded. 1 million pesitas. Ha 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 ha. Okay, I don't sound anything like Dr. Evil, but for you Austin Powers fans, that was my best attempt. Still, the Spanish forces didn't just abandon their fight when the city fell. Instead, they dispatched Don Simon so he could continue the resistance against the British. This right here is where things really start to get messy, but stay with me. On October 8, 1762, just two days after the city of Manila fell, Salazar wrote to the archbishop to inform him that he had granted he was granted the title of governor and the captain general under the statutes of the Council of the Indies. Since he was now considered governor under the statute, he demanded that the archbishop hand over the royal seal, and that just wasn't happening. A lot of people in play here. I hope you're saying I hope you're following me. While maintaining his power as position of the governor, the archbishop actually surrendered to the British military with a stipulation that the Roman Catholic religion and its Episcopal government would remain in power, private properties would remain in the hands of their pre-British owners, and the citizens of the former Spanish colony would be able to peacefully travel and trade both domestically and internationally as British subjects. Extremely important then, because remember, the British forever was the, king, the empire that the sun never set. So Salazar, who saw himself as governor, did not agree with this at all, and he refused to acknowledge any agreements that had been signed with the British. This was a tough spot for the British, and until he was addressed as the legitimate governor general of the Philippines, Salazar refused to budge. Now we're getting pretty deep here. I realize that. There's a lot of military talk. There's a lot of names being thrown out there. Cutting to the chase, though, Salazar was eventually named Governor General and approved by English King James III. Excuse me, King Charles III. This was after he drew 10,000 mostly volunteers to defend the island. In February of 1763, the British signed the Treaty of Paris, thus ending the occupation. Now, the British were still around, and they gave some conquistadors some land rights. That pissed off the, the Cavite uh, natives who continued the revolution and after a ton of bloodshed won back their island on June 12, 1898. They were now the first republic of the Philippines. I would have picked another name because I think that if you call yourself the first, that means that there's going to at least be a second. That just doesn't sound like good karma to me. So as freedom would have it, that situation didn't last very long. The Japanese invaded in 1942. We know what big war was going on then. This occupation was brutal, and for you military history buffs, this included the Batten Death March. Between 60,000 and 80,000 American and Filipino prisoners of war walked from Batten to Camp O'Donnell. According to the soldiers that survived the march, the first Japanese soldiers were really actually very kind. They shared food and cigarettes with the prisoners and even let them keep some of their own belongings. But that didn't last very long, as a lot of these Japanese soldiers had lost family and friends during the battle. They became much more bitter toward their cap toward 
their captives. One of the first atrocities of the march was committed by this colonel, Sunji, who had ordered the execution of approximately 350 or 400 Filipino officers and non-commissioned officers after they'd already surrendered. According to others at the time, Sunji was acting against the wishes of his commanding officer, General Homa. General Homa wanted the prisoners to be transferred very peacefully. He was, you know, he was about war, but he wanted things done as quietly and peacefully as they could. One form of torture that these soldiers had to endure was known as the sun treatment, which is when the soldiers, or the prisoners maybe we should call them, were forced to sit in the sweltering direct sunlight without helmets or other head coverings, and anyone who asked for water would just be shot. During the march, those who eventually succumbed to their fatigue would be run over by trucks, regardless of whether they were dead or alive, just flat run over where they collapsed. Some soldiers were even randomly stabbed with bayonets. Overall, the 80,000 POWs who were forced on this march, only 54,000 made it to the end. Prayers up, my brothers. Let's change gears here. Just like every other country in the world, the Philippines is also home to a great number of urban legends. Some bizarre, some spooky, and some are just downright funny. The first urban le legend I want to tell you about Seriously had me checking the labels of all my drinks just in case. It's the myth of the happy horse. So one of the most popular Filipino beer brands is called the Red Horse. And the Red Horse bottles have this head of a proud stallion on their logo. However, the legend has it that there's another alternate logo out there that people refer to as the happy horse. The happy horse is a more comical image of the proud stallion smiling. It's said that the beer in these happy horse bottles is a lot stronger than the other beer. Many of the hopeful college students in the Philippines have kept an eye out for the fabled happy horse bottles, but most have been really disappointed in their quest. The truth of the matter is the bottles of the happy horse are actually just an old design of the red horse that's since been replaced with the more uh, with the more stoic horse, I guess. The company didn't want to waste the old bottles, so they mixed them in with the new ones when they ran out. So the happy horse version is becoming more and more rare with time. This means that all the bottles with the happy horse are actually filled with the same alcohol contents as the other bottles. But it's still pretty cool that that's an artifact in this uh, cultural history. I, I like it. I like it. The next urban legend I'd like to share with you is just as hilarious, but not nearly as harmless. It's the tale of the mysterious slipper-stealing killer cults. Slipper-stealing killer cults. Hmm. In the area surrounding Cavite, a common warning you might hear is, Hey, make sure you hide your flip-flops every night, because if a cultist gets one of your flip-flops, they're going to kill you. My first response would be, what you talking about, Willis? Well, rumor has it, if you leave even one of those, any one type of footwear outside your door, a member of a local cult will come and chant a mysterious spell of hypnotism on it and will make you come outside so that they can kill you. <laughs> I know, I know. That's just funny. I, I'm sorry. It's just funny. Other people say that the cultists are actually they actually count the pairs of footwear so they know how many people are in the house and they can sneak in and get the inhabitants one by one. While this really sounds pretty absurd, many residents in the area actually claim to have seen some of these cultists. 
Moinkovy Day residents said that in 2016, they saw four people walking around the Soldiers Hills areas with black hoods. These people reportedly had children following them singing some creepy, strange song. At first, the person who saw this strange prey prayed didn't pay any attention to them, thinking that they were on their way to some maybe late night costume party or something like that. But she freaked out the next day when she told a friend about the strange sighting and was and was informed that the group marched to the exact description that the group was the exact description of the cult. And if the owner of the house she had seen them walking toward had opened the door, it would have been over for him. I don't know how much I believe that. That sounds like a bunch of crap to me, but it's still pretty funny. Not many people outside the Philippines remember or even know who the Marcos are. Maybe if I say that crazy lady with all the shoes, but the family of the former president, Ferdinand Marcos, have two big myths tied to uh, tied to their names. The first one is the legend of the clone of the Bong Bong Marcos. Bong Bong Marcos is the second child of the former president. He also served as the senator in the, thir- in the 16th Congress. Well, according to rumors, Bong Bong was actually dead, and the person in the Senate was a secret undercover clone of him. The rumors about Bong Bong started in the late 1970s and gained popularity in the 80s. And according to many different versions of the legend, there are days when people think that he may have died and he may not have. Some people think he was stabbed to death during an altercation with a classmate, while others think he was actually killed by rebels. Still others think he got into a car accident somewhere in Manila and died on the way to the hospital. Regardless of the details, Believers of this urban legend all agree on one thing. When Bong Bong died, his mother, Imelda Marcos, shoe queen, convinced one of her nephews to undergo plastic surgery and pretend to be Bong Bong in order to protect the Marcos political dynasty. Wow. Alright, the last urban legend I want to share with you today is the mysterious death of Julie Vega. Julie died on May 6th. 18, excuse me, May 6, 1985, at 16 years old. It was 15 days before her, before her birthday. This Filipino child actress, singer, and commercial model was best known for her roles in a couple of movies that I'm not even going to begin to try to pronounce. You may say, Scott, has that ever stopped you before? Well, it did this time. So her last film, and I can say this, Lovingly Yours, Helen, was about a little girl who was the daughter of a mortal woman and a demon. Her demon father frequently possessed her over the entire course of the movie, and it was only a few days after the filming of Lovingly Yours Helen ended that Julie became sick and died. While her official cause of death was listed as cardiac arrest secondary to uh, pneumonia, a lot of people think that there is something more supernatural at work. One theory of her death was that she was cursed by a supernatural being called, oh my gosh, stay with me here, the Incanta Da. Now let me tell you, I know a lot of Filipino people, and I know some of you guys are listening. You tell me how to say this. It's E-N-G-K-A-N-T-A-D-A, Incanta Da. Now, if I didn't butcher that word, I'm really doing fantastic. So feel free to tell me how to say it if you know how. What it does mean in English, though, is female fairy. I can say that. So that's what I'm going with. The fairy was apparently disturbed and disrespected by the movie staff, so the fairy took her, her Julie's life as a punishment. 
There's a theory that also that says that there were land monsters that fell in love with Julie and took her life so that her spirit would live with them in the woods. Some say when she was buried, a spirit quester claimed her when he saw Julie Vega's ghost floating over her coffin. Other rumors say that after she was buried, her song, Somewhere in My Past, could be heard playing in a room while her parents were elsewhere in the house. But whenever they went to check her room, the sound mysteriously stopped. Oh my gosh. Alright, so if you've ever turned tuned in to Dying to Eat before, you already know that there are lots of ways to bury your dead people all over the world. In the West, we usually bury our dead people in coffins or cremate their remains and spread their ashes out at sea or, you know, something like that. The Cavite people have a much more environmentally friendly way of disposing of their dead. The burials are meant to honor not only the dead, but also the natural landscape that they call home. Commonly known as the Cavite tree burials, the people of the Cavite area traditionally bury their dead inside a hollowed out tree. This region, located about 10 miles south of the bustling capital of Manila, still remains a lot uh, a lot of their traditional customs still represents a lot of their traditional customs. Cavite tree burials are one such tradition that managed to survive both the Spanish and later the British colonization of the country as it spread the, the Catholic traditions that came with it. Tree burials are intensely personal as near the end of people's lives, the people of Cavite would usually venture out into the forest that they grew up around and the forest that have been nourished and sheltering for generations, that personal bond that they had with them, they would use that to go select a tree that they wanted to be buried in. I think it's kind of creepy to go look at caskets before you pass away. You know, that's just me. Uh, I guess I would if I thought I needed to. And I know a lot of people do, and that's, that's your thing. To go walk around a forest and to pick out a tree that is basically your casket, <laughs> That's even another step for me. So after choosing their burial tree, the family of the dying person would build them a small hut near the base of the tree where the person would just basically stay until they passed away. And they really did it out of a good-hearted place. They did it so that, that the person that was passing away would be more familiar with their area and their spirit could rest without fear after they passed. You know, I guess that makes sense. They didn't want to be alone during this time, though, so friends and relatives would work on the hollow tree that was, or the tree that would soon be hollow, so that it would be ready when you passed away. <laughs> I know I'm getting, keep getting off subject here, but my gosh, can you imagine that you're dying and you're sitting beside this tree, and your kids are hollowing it out because it's going to be your your casket, your, your eternal home. That's just a lot to me, but more power to them. I, I, actually, it's pretty cool, I guess. So once the person dies, their body is placed vertically in the hollowed-out tree, and the opening is sealed. It's not until it's not only the tree that has meaning; the burial itself is steeped in meaning and tradition. For example, the color of the coffin. Traditionally, elders are placed in brown coffins, or yeah, brown coffins that go into the trees while single men and women are placed in white ones. The burials are also accompanied by a matching band, which is used to symbol, as a symbol of wealth or social status. 
The position of the coffin also matters. For example, when it's pointed toward the opening, then that means that the family is okay with letting go of their their recently deceased relative. So, but if it's like a, a, a child, then they would face it away because the family's not quite ready for the spirit to move on. They they want that person around a little bit longer. There's even this little statue called a Likha, this traditionally entombed with the dead inside the tree trunk. But it's now left out because it's we had people that were raiding the, the tombs or the trees to get them. Actually, overall though, I guess that sounds pretty cool. While I've spent time sitting near a tombstone and remembering my past fam family and friends, the idea of sitting under the shade of a tree that holds them actually sounds pretty comforting. It's definitely not the worst way to go, I guess. Now, look, that's a lot of information. And what are we here to ultimately talk about? That is what the Cavite eat at their funeral gatherings. So, so we're going to assume that it's pretty standard fare. And let me tell you, while there may be everyday cuisine in the Philippines, when you hear what they're having, you'll be dying to eat too. Ha! <laughs> See what I did there? If you were to go to most restaurants in Cavite, you'd be pretty disappointed because they really mostly serve American, British, and Spanish foods because Cavite is something that you make at home. That, that cuisine. Considering how good they eat, though, man, I don't know why anybody ever goes out to a restaurant. Some of the foods that are really standard to them are smoked and salted, fresh-caught fish with garlic and rice, fresh salsa made with mangoes, watermelon, papaya, peppers, cucumbers, sausages with garlic and herbs strung together by hand, fresh, sweet coconut milk and locally grown coffee with underlying tones of cinnamon, countless dishes featuring locally caught seafood like shrimp, oysters, mussels, squid, and tons of different kinds of fish. That's just scratching the surface. I really love Filipino food. Like some of the other places we've covered on Dying to Eat, the Spanish influence in the Philippines has left behind some of their cultural traditions, specifically All Souls Day and Dia Los Muertos. On these days, families gather in celebration to remember and honor their dead friends and relatives, bringing plenty of food for the attendees and to leave offerings for the dead. We've heard a lot about that, haven't we? I think that's interesting, too. There's also plenty of sweets for the kids, who often can be seen around running around collecting candle wax from the vigil candles. Either they use it to play with, or they sell it back to the candle makers so they can make a couple of pennies, you know? I don't know about you, but all this talk about foods definitely got my mouth watering. So I'm glad that we're finally here at the end to talk about this week's recipe. This time, I'm going to talk about adobo bong de la. That's yellow adobo. It's a hearty meat and veggie dish that I think you're going to love. Before we jump into it, I'd first like to address the question that I'm faced with for every episode, which is how does the recipe I develop compare to the recipe traditionally used in the culture that we're exploring? To quote Chef Sharwin T, he's a Filipino host of a TV show called Let's Do Lunch. There's a running joke that there are probably as many versions of adobo as there are islands in the Philippines. That's about 7,000 at low tide. In other words, adobo is like an American casserole. If there's, It's really personal, and it's a dish that's totally open to interpretation and customization. 
If you follow along with me at home, I hope that you feel inspired to add your own flair to whatever we've got cooking for every week, this week included. Personally, I love adobo, and I almost always have some kind of protein marinating in the sauce in my fridge because it's easy to fix and it's delicious. This week's recipe was designed around six servings, so make sure to adjust the amounts accordingly for your own purposes. To get started, we'll need four pounds of boneless pork loin cut into one inch thick steaks, two cups of beef broth, and half a cup of chicken broth mixed together, a large sweet onion chopped, one head of garlic, and two knobs of fresh turmeric minced and mixed together, four bay leaves, two spoons two teaspoons of black pepper, one cup of, of white vinegar, and three tablespoons of olive oil. We'll kick things off by heating the oil over medium-high heat. Scoop your minced garlic and, and turmeric mixture into a pan and cook it until it's fragrant. That's about three minutes, and you'll know when it's ready because, oh my God, it just smells so good. Next, add in the onions and cook for about five minutes or until the onions begin to break down and soften some. Stir frequently so that it doesn't stick. After that, it's time to add the bay leaves and the pepper. If your mixture does begin to stick, just add a little bit of that broth in there and deglaze the pan. Now, add the pork and stir until it's all well coated. Well, this is an exception to the usual rule of not overcrowding your pan. While this is an exception to the usual rule of not overcrowding your pan, the goal is to brown the meat while coating it generously with the other ingredients. Once it's done, add the remaining broth and turn up the heat. Soon as the liquid begins to boil, and when it does, you're going to want to go ahead and turn it down. Turn it down to a simmer, cover it, and let it cook for about 40 minutes. After that, stir in the vinegar and bring it back up to a boil. Remove it from the heat and stir in the sugar. Now, your hot treat, it's going to have like a little slight sour bite, but man, right then, you're ready to eat. I enjoy mine with some broth-soaked wild rice. Note, it's easy to dry out the pork, so my recommendation is to liberally cover the meat with a broth to keep it hydrated. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like you, and I really appreciate your support. We are now on every major podcast platform. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and you can find us under Dying to Eat Podcast. So please tell your friends, subscribe, listen, and like. Every Sunday, we drop new episodes. Make sure to let us know if you want to hear about something specific or if you just love us because we want to know that too. Until next time, stay lively.